I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Star fund manager Neil Woodford halts withdrawals from his flagship equity fund, sending shockwaves through the city. Can you become a YouTube millionaire? And what your choice of wristwatch says about you? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Investors have been busy this week absorbing one of the biggest stories to hit fund management since the financial crisis. Neil Woodford, the star fund manager who launched his own equity fund five years ago, was forced to halt withdrawals from his £3.7 billion equity income fund after a run of redemptions left it in an increasingly precarious position. Kate Beerley has been pursuing the story for the FT and joins us now. Kate, can you first explain to the listeners what happened with Woodford's uh, equity fund this week? Yes, so Neil Woodford, the UK's arguably most famous fund manager, has suspended trading in his equity income fund. And that means no investors have been able to buy or sell the fund. And it follows a deluge of outflows very high numbers of investors asking for their money back in recent months and weeks. And the trigger particularly was Kent County Council, which had invested a large sum with Woodford, deciding it wanted to get its investment out. And that decision triggered the series of events that we're now witnessing. It would have meant around 7% of the fund walking out the door, which was just too much to deal with after Woodford's pretty miserable year. But Woodford is such a big name in the industry, isn't he? And he went into this with this formidable reputation as an investor. What, what's gone wrong in the longer term? Yeah, he's, he's faced this major issue with liquidity. So how easily things in the fund can be bought or sold. And that's on top of a period of pretty high profile, poor performance. So his equity fund is invested in some large cap UK stocks, but it also has exposure to very illiquid stocks and very, very small companies, which are hard to sell. Now, at the same time, his performance has declined quite dramatically, particularly due to his taking some very large bets on companies that he believes are undervalued as a result of Brexit negativity. So that decline in performance has led to months and months of outflows, and it's meant it was increasingly hard to keep the number of illiquid stocks or the proportion within this regulatory limit of 10%. Now, in a video last night, Woodford said the market was basically anticipating the deals that he was going to have to do to sell the liquid stocks in order to you know, make the portfolio work. And so the prices he was achieving were too low. And just to, to stress his outflow point, the fund's down nearly two thirds from its high of 10.2 billion two years ago. Investors have pulled an average of 10 million each business day over the past month. Right. So if I'm an investor in this, you know, how long am I going to have to wait to be able to access my funds again? And, and am I going to face losses? 
Well, we don't know how long investors will have to wait. There's obviously the issue that if it does start trading again, there could be another run on the funds. So they're going to have to work out how to manage that. The fund will be pricing daily, so investors will have some transparency over over what's going on. But yes, there is a risk that when it starts up again, when it opens, that the net asset value may have declined over that period. What about Woodford's other investment vehicles? Have they been affected? And and are there any other companies with close links to to Woodford's uh, funds, such as the brokers, who who have also been affected by this? Yeah, well, we've already seen uh, shares in Patient Capital Trust decline very steeply. Uh, There is some overlap in the holdings between those two, and they have both been engaged in in some deals in recent months in order to help get some unlisted stocks uh, off the books of equity income. So there is some contagion risk there, certainly. But shares in Hargreaves Lansdowne, the uh, UK's largest broker, have been falling very dramatically on the news and the company has been suffering as a result of this. Now, that's because Hargreaves Lansdowne and Woodford's fates have become in some ways increasingly interlinked over the years. Now, Hargreaves has been a very prominent supporter of Mr Woodford since he set out on his own in its marketing to customers and it also owns a very large chunk of his assets, both on behalf of Hargreaves DIY customers who make their own decisions and in Hargreaves' own funds. So Hargreaves was the second biggest faller on the FTSE 100, closing almost 5% lower last night. And some people have been asking questions about Hargreaves' commercial relationships with Woodford and whether that's played too high a part, played too large a part, certainly in Woodford's repeated inclusion in its favourite fund list, the Wealth 50, even as Woodford's performance has declined steeply. And Hargreaves also has around 600 million invested in Woodford funds via its Hargreaves multi-manager funds. Now, that means some people say that there is an issue that if they ditch him from the Wealth 50, the customers in those Hargreaves multi-manager funds might see the value of Woodford decline it might impact them and vice versa there could be an issue that if Hargreaves sells out of Woodford in the multi-manager funds customers elsewhere DIY customers are disadvantaged Hargreaves denies that but there are you know questions being asked about whether they've made the right decisions here and presumably questions being asked about where the regulator stands on all of this Yes, well, the Financial Conduct Authority had been monitoring outflows and liquidity in the fund in recent months, in more for more than a year, in fact. But it's definitely going to be much more keenly focused now. And this is particularly kind of sensitive because we had this huge issue with property funds in the wake of the Brexit vote, where many of them were forced to shut to investors in the same way as Mr Woodford uh, because of this liquidity issue. So this problem of liquidity and open-ended funds has been something that's on the regulator's mind for a while, and, and there will now potentially be pressure to do something more about it. Thanks very much there to Kate Bearley. You can read more news and analysis of the Woodford crisis in the FT this weekend. Now, video gamers, makeup artists, craft teachers and even toddlers are part of a new generation of do-it-yourself video entrepreneurs sharing the advertising spoils of YouTube's success, pulling in, in some cases, millions of viewers for their homemade content. But making serious money out of vlogging is no simple matter, as Iona Bain discovered when she recently recently launched her own channel on personal finance issues. Iona, thanks for joining us. We've seen this real explosion of people going out and making their own content for YouTube. How do you actually go about making money out of that, though? And, and what sort of rewards are we talking about, potentially? 
Well, in theory, the sky's the limit. So if you get a seven-figure following, you could attract a seven-figure income. And as you mentioned, there is this premier league of YouTube superstars who are now millionaires. So I talk about this little girl called Gabby in my article who has her own channel, Toys and Little Gabby. And the channel now has about 14 million subscribers and she's thought to be earning a million pounds a year from advertising. You also have gaming superstars like Dan Middleton, who is thought to have earned 25 million pounds last year. So in theory, there's serious money to be made. In reality, it's not only very unlikely that you'll break into that YouTube A-list if you haven't already, but actually it's very unlikely that you'll ever make enough to give up the day job, let alone you know, become filthy rich. And in fact, I found in the course of researching my article that 97% of YouTube channels will only make less than about $16,000 a year. So for many people, that is practically a definition of poverty. It would never be enough to persuade most people to give up their day job. And when you think about the work that goes into creating a successful YouTube channel, the filming, the editing, the promoting, engaging with the fans, a lot of creators feel like that work is disproportionate to what you get out of it. So you've really got to do it for the love of it. So let's say I wanted to chance my arm anyway Mm. and have a go. What sort of outlay am I going to need in terms of equipment and everything else? Well, there's differing schools of thought. There will be some creators who got started with very modest resources, maybe filming videos on their smartphone if they had a particularly good camera on their phone. A lot of them think you can get away with that for a period of time. However, standards are getting higher and higher. And in order to stand out in this vast sea of content, it seems that you are going to have to get serious with your outlay and with the professional equipment that you have. So I spoke to a few video experts and it became quite clear to me that you don't just need a good camera, you potentially need LED lighting, you need uh, stabilizers, tripods, editing software, and then you potentially have to spend some money promoting your channel as well on other social media platforms. So I think if you get change out of £500 for an initial outlay, you're doing well. And, and what, how, do, how do you share advertising with YouTube? How does the model work? So the model is very complicated. Firstly, you have to have 4,000 hours of viewing time and 1,000 subscribers just to qualify for advertising revenue. And then YouTube goes away and figures out what percentage of your viewers are monetizable, which is YouTube speak for how many of your viewers are commercially valuable to advertisers. And usually that is a percentage, about 40 to 60% of your overall viewers. And they calculate that based on all sorts of different criteria, where your viewers are located, how old they are. Younger viewers are seen as much more valuable than older viewers. And their level of ad engagement, i.e. Do they actually click on the adverts when they see them? That's very important to the advertisers, funnily enough. So in all, you can probably expect to earn anywhere between 5p to £7 per 1,000 views. But of course, it massively varies on your popularity, what you cover, whether you happen to be in vogue any given time. And then, of course, YouTube takes its 45% cut of it all. Yeah, so it take a lot of views to, to get you into that millionaire mm. bracket. What about influencer marketing? That's a sort of separate branch of this, isn't it? And I believe there's something something that the regulator has become interested in. Yes, the influencer culture is not unique to YouTube. 
but it certainly is becoming a way for creators to monetize these channels because as we've explored here, it's actually very difficult to make money from advertising alone. So a lot of these big name YouTube stars have actually made a lot of their money from activities outside of YouTube. Of course, it's their popularity that's got them into a position where they can really monetize their channel. But actually, they're making a lot of their money from brand partnerships, sponsorships, activities such as live appearances. And naturally, this is inviting the scrutiny of regulators. The Advertising Standards Authority has cautioned hundreds of influencers for failing to declare free gifts and not making it clear when they are essentially promoting a product, but not making that very, very clear to the audience. So I think that this is going to become much more on the radar of the Advertising Standards Authority. And they've already issued some very detailed guidance on their website about most commercial scenarios you would encounter as a YouTube creator. So if you're in any doubt, if you have started a channel and you're you're wondering how to navigate these very murky waters, then I would advise going onto the ASA website and checking out their guidance so that you don't fall foul of their um, increasingly strict rules. Thanks very much there to Iona Bain. You can read her article about how to become a YouTube millionaire in full at www.ft.com slash money. For our final item, we're looking at watches. Not the sort I'm wearing, uh, the £10 plastic digital variety, but the kind of desirable high-end timepiece that appears regularly in the glossy pages of the Weekend FT. James Max, our Rich People's Problems columnist, is here to tell us about this rather niche area of personal spending. Um, James, the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, as myself, as a watch layman, is why on earth would you even sort of play this game? These things cost an arm and a leg. Does anyone actually really notice? <laughs> it rather depends why you're doing this. Are you doing it because you want people to notice or are you doing it because you want you to notice? And as far as I'm concerned, whilst other people may look at the watch that I wear or anything else, uh, I've always had a watch. I find them very useful. I like looking at them and I like a nice watch. Now, until I got a, an Apple uh, watch... I was very intrigued by quality watchmanship, craftsmanship, <laughs> you know, all the intricate details and the making and the things and the skill that went into it. It is a, it is a kind of a thing. And I think if you're a, a bloke of a certain age and you've worked in certain places, then a watch becomes, I suppose, a sort of badge of what it is that you do. And, and, and you know, it's part of it's part of the culture. Now, some people might say, look, it doesn't really matter. Go and get yourself a, a cheap and nasty. Uh, we've had this fad for wearable tech. And I wanted to talk about that because I, too, have been drawn into that. I mean, I'm still wearing it today. And I and I say in the article that I'm getting rid of it, I'm quite parted with it <laughs> because it is quite useful for some things. This is the Apple Watch. This is the the Apple Watch and here it is and sometimes it talks to me and I and I did say in the article that I thought that maybe it was listening to every word. I have been contacted by Apple themselves to just reinforce the point that it does not listen to you at all times and only when you <laughs> press the button and Siri is operating. And I'm also reliably informed that the next generation on from the one that I have is less susceptible to fat wrists turning it on. <laughs> Meanwhile, we've had a lot of engagement online and might I suggest that Scottishness got right up there. More junk from the FT, says Scottishness. But why does anyone need a watch? Are you folks so insecure? And just picking out on your point there, no, I'm not insecure. 
telling the time is often a good starting point for a watch. And, uh, you know, to me, this is, uh, you know, it is it is a vanity thing. But a rich people's problem is, well, you can go and spend an awful lot of money on an awful lot of watch, but you can make some terrible, terrible mistakes and buy some absolute horrors because some mm. things come in and go out of fashion. And sometimes if you get it right, you'll buy a watch. It will not only stay the same value as to what you spent on it, it'll go up in value. So, for example... If you were to go and buy one of these Rolex Submariners and something like that for £6,700 from a Rolex store, if they were to have one, you normally have to go on a waiting list, you could sell it immediately for about 1250 quid more than you paid for it if it's new and in a box and hasn't been worn. I was going to say, uh, I was wondering whether they're like cars in the sense that if you buy a new one, does it immediately depreciate as it exits the factory or... Are you better off buying a vintage watch that then appreciates over in value over time? Some of them will just depreciate over time. You've bought it. And, for example, I've made the mistake, too, of buying something which is kind of faddish, modern. Uh, say, for example, one or two of uh, the Breitling collection that, you know, they came out with an aviator and then it had various digital bits. And, you know, the punters, you know, the true punters don't like that. And Hublot and various others, you know, IWC, they kind of went in and went out of fashion. And, you know, it became a sort of fashion statement that if you're riding the wave of the fashion, fine. But there are others which, whether it's Patek Philippe or whether it's uh, Rolex, you can find a sort of 1960s, 1970s Submariner Rolex that costs twice as much as the new one would cost today because not so many of them were made because you go back in time when a, a dress watch was all important. So you would go to a black tie do and you would take off your daily sporty watch and you'd put on something else. And you put on something else that might be a smart dress watch. Now anything goes. And all of those vintage submariners that people did actually use because they went diving, there aren't many of them around. Mm. So I think, you know, it's one of these things that if you want to turn it into a, an investment and, a, and a, a, you know, a really clever thing, you can do so. If you just want to have some fun with it, you can do that as well. And I think, you know, reflecting some of the comments that, you know, people sort of make on, online. Well, I, was gonna, I was going to ask you about one comment or set of comments. Actually, oh, yeah. Saying that they're worried about buying a particularly expensive watch that might attract the uh, attention of thieves, uh, you know. And is this something that's ever, that's ever worried you? Or uh, It does worry me, which is why when I travel, uh, one of the things I will probably do is take the tech. And I'll take the tech because it does all the things that you want it to do. Uh, you can store your passes on it. You can put your credit card on it. And in fact, for security purposes, for map uh, navigation and things, you can get it to do your mapping uh, and keep your phone in your pocket because you don't want to be wandering around the streets with people with mopeds and all that sort of stuff. So for security. But look, for day-to-day -day wandering around, there are lots of people wandering around with all sorts of things, either on their wrists and their pockets and their things and their stuff and their wallet in their pocket and credit cards. So I, I hope we live in a society that isn't too... Too mad, but there are some watches where you you know you go above the sort of as soon as you're spending above ten grand, then you are getting into the realms of either ridiculousness or otherwise. And there are some people who, for whatever reason, they like really expensive watches. And we're talking forty, fifty, a hundred grand for a watch. To me, bonkers. But if that's what you want to do, please do it. And as English Rose says, well, you can't buy class, James Max. You always make me laugh though. Uh, and then goes on to talk about different kinds of class that can be expressed through these things because you can for example as you're wearing a is it a nice little timex there 
It's a Casio. Oh, it's a Casio. Even better. You see, Casio, Timex, whatever. That's sort of classless. And and, and there is a certain uh, degree of youth uh, that will like wearing those because it, it does the job and it's a badge and it's kind of fun and it's trendy. It's a little bit like wearing a pair of Converse. Yes. Is there a problem for this market in people not wearing watches at all and simply fishing into their pockets to look at the time on their phone? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, but then on the other hand, I think people like wearing watches in the same way that people are going back to listening to vinyl. You don't need vinyl. Uh, it, you know, in, in the week where the iTunes store becomes relegated to a back passage of, uh, you know, the the uh, Apple environs uh, to, to be subsumed into three separate different pieces of Apple Music and Apple TV and whichever the other one, podcast or whatever... Uh, you know, we, technology moves on, and yes, of course, we we add that to our lives. But there is something about an old-fashioned vinyl record, the <laughs> of, of the listening and the listening experience. The first time I got vinyl back after having banished it for fifteen years because our oh, CDs are so much better, you can butter them with jam. You know all this stuff, and they're indestructible. No, they're not. But the first time I got vinyl back to listen to an album that was crafted as an album. Yes. Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Hello and welcome back to the vinyl. The watch, get rid of it by all means, but miss it and you will have it back. A really beautifully crafted watch is a thing to enjoy for yourself, not to be flash, but if you get it right, it'll also be a great investment as well. Thank you very much, James Max. You can read his Rich People's Problems column in full at www.ft.com money. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.